Good evening, and thank you all for coming out on this cold night. Uh, welcome to the public lecture series. My name is Sam Wong, and I'm uh, in molecular biology and neuroscience, and I'm also the chair of the public lectures committee, which brings me the honor of introducing the spring semester series. And it's my pleasure to introduce the first lecture of the series by uh, Professor Joan Connolly of New York University. Um, for those of you who are interested in the whole series, we've got a lot of very interesting lectures coming up this spring. This is but the first of them. And later this semester, we have speakers such as um, Avi Wigderson from the Institute for Advanced Study, Ruth Reichel, editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine. And if you're interested in all these things, you can read about them at the website lectures.princeton.edu. So you can read about them there. And uh, you can also see things on Cablecast if you're interested and can't make it out. Tonight's lecture is part of the Spencer Trask series. And it was originally endowed by uh, Spencer Trask of the class of 1866 and 1891. And he secured it, uh, he bestowed this, this money on the university for the purpose of securing the services of eminent men to develop public lectures before the university on subjects of special interest. The, va the wording of the bequest was quite vague, and in the end, many eminent people have been invited to lecture in this series. Past lecturers have included Niels Bohr, lecturing on the structure of the atom, Arnold Toynbee on Near Eastern Affairs, T.S. Eliot, Bertrand Russell, and Margaret Mead. And so you can see there have been a lot of very interesting speakers. Mr. Trask was obviously a pretty interesting guy. He was one of Thomas Edison's original backers. Tonight, Professor Connolly will be introduced by Professor William Childs, who is at this university, and Professor Childs is a professor of classical art and archaeology, and he will introduce Professor Connolly. Speaker, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm not certain if I heard correctly. Uh, I'm not introducing a man. Ah, I see. <laughs> Times change. It gives me particular pleasure, pleasure this evening to introduce our speaker. Uh, it's always a pleasure to introduce an eminent speaker. But in this particular case, I uh, think you all know, she was an undergraduate here at Princeton. And I was lucky enough to be her senior thesis advisor. And our paths have crossed on, at various occasions. And so I've watched her go from, dare I say, a neophyte undergraduate studying classics and ancient art uh, to uh, holder of the Lillian Vernon Chair for Teaching Excellence at NYU. That's a mighty path to tread in a not very long period of time. Now, uh, Joan Connolly's senior thesis actually ended up being published, not as a book, but as a very long an influential article in a collection of essays on image and text. <clears throat> she went from Princeton to Bryn Mawr, where she wrote her dissertation on Hellenist or votive uh, sculpture of Hellenistic Cyprus, which was also then published. And you'll realize that I'm paid for this. Uh, she is celebrating this week the publication of this book, uh, which is called Portrait of a Priestess, Women and Ritual in Ancient Greece, published by Princeton University Press. And I recommend the book to you all. In this particular case, and this is not a given, in this particular case, obviously the content is wonderful, but something has happened at the Princeton University Press. The images are excellent. In fact, the whole production of the book is brilliant. And so we have uh, to thank both uh, Professor Connolly and the Princeton University Press for giving us something of real merit. Now, uh, the work of uh, Professor Connolly is very varied. Uh, she has worked on, and this is a re reflected in this book, uh, Portrait of a Priestess, uh, she has worked on both art and text and myth and religion. 
And all of that comes together in this book, but it also came together in an uh, intriguing reinterpretation of the Parthenon frieze, for which she is very well known, and which must have in part led to her award of a MacArthur Fellowship in 1996. Uh, and I think that's a signal uh, honor paid her. But it hardly is the only one. Now, on the one hand, she is an interpretive scholar, such as in the book, such as her interpretation of the Parthenon phrase. But she is also an excavator. And uh, she has led the uh, New York University Euronisos Island Expedition uh, in Cyprus since 1990, uh, where she uh, has excavated uh, a fascinating site uh, on an island, of all things, off the southwest coast of Cyprus. She has also been a member of the French archaeological mission to Falaika, Kuwait, where she, in fact, uh, installed or designed the Hellenistic uh, Rome's of the new Kuwait National Museum, and where she has worked on, in fact, cult activities in a Seleucid site uh, in Kuwait. Now, other honors. I mean, the, the list is so long, I uh, fear to cite it all. But I'll start. Uh, she's been a visiting fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard. She has been a fellow or visiting fellow at All Souls, New, Magdalene, and Corpus Christi Colleges at Oxford. She holds the honorary citizenship of the municipality of Peia in the Republic of Cyprus, that's the town near where she excavates. And she has also been given a signal uh, citation by the, and this is a bit strange, the Ministry of Communications and Works. It sounds like she builds roads or something. But in Cyprus, the uh, Department of Archaeology or Antiquities is, in fact, in that ministry. And she was uh, noted for her uh, aid in the exploration and preservation of uh, Cypriot cultural heritage. This honor was, in fact, uh, repeated here in the United States, where in 2003 she was appointed to the Cultural Property uh, advisory Committee of the Department of State. And just to top it off, this past January, she received the Archaeological Institute of America's Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching. She is currently uh, at, uh, visiting at the Museum of, uh, or Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, where she is working to turn her book 10% discount at the door, uh, where she is working to turn her book on Greek priestesses into a traveling exhibition of objects shown within their religious context. Tonight, she will speak on aspects of this work as they relate to the female agency in Greek cult. Professor Connolly. Thank you, Willie. Um, let me say how delighted I am to return to Princeton tonight and to be welcomed by so many old teachers, colleagues, classmates, and friends, um, as well as the current crop of brilliant and attractive Princeton undergraduates um, who may be here. It is somewhat unnerving for me to return to Makash 50, the setting for some of my most intense undergraduate moments. Um, sitting for exams, sometimes less than well-prepared, and getting an eyeful of the streakers who found Frank Bourne's Roman history class a favorite destination in the mid-1970s. Let me also acknowledge the generosity of Spencer Trask, class of 1866, whose benefactions endowed the talk that I am so very honored to give this evening. Exactly 100 years ago this term, the Spencer Trask Lecture was delivered by an archaeologist, David Hogarth, keeper of the Ashmolean Museum, famed mentor and friend of T.E. Lawrence. 
I have spent much time with Hogarth's journals chronicling his 1888 trip up the coast of western Cyprus, where he was among the first to make mention of the little island, Yeronisos, where I have been excavating for the past 16 years. A holy island and pilgrimage destination, Yeronisos is a day's walk or afternoon sail from Paphos. This evening, I will discuss such ritual movement across the ancient landscape and the agency of women within this sacred space. I cannot help but wonder what Hogarth would have made of what I have to say this evening. I think we can have the lights. At the end of the second century BC, Athenian worshippers set out in procession, marching from Athens to the sanctuary of Apollo at Delphi to celebrate the Pythias festival. One individual stood out among the participants, Chrysis, priestess of Athena Polias. For her role in making the pageant one that befitted both cities, the people of Delphi bestowed upon Chrysis the crown of Apollo. They also voted to grant her and all her descendants a most impressive series of rights and privileges. Status as proxenos, that is, special representative of Athens to Delphi, the right to consult the oracle, priority of trial, inviolability, freedom from taxes, a front seat in all competitions held by the city, the right to own land and houses, and all other honors customary for proxenoi and benefactors of the city. Back in Athens, her cousins, Dionysius, Nikites, and Phililla, set up a statue of Chryses on the Acropolis. The public decree by the people of Delphi and the statue base from the Athenian Acropolis provide a tantalizing glimpse into the life of an exceptional woman. They attest to the visibility and mobility of Chryses across the ancient landscape, marching from Athens to Delphi, taking a front seat at the competitions in Delphi, owning property and land that made her status manifest, and having her statue stand in perpetuity within the sacred temenos of the Athenian Acropolis. Chryses was not alone in this visibility. Indeed, the archaeological ep and epigraphic records attest to the prominence of priestesses not just at Athens, but all across the Greek world. Priestesses are represented throughout visual culture, in architectural sculpture, votive statues and reliefs, funerary monuments, ceramic vases, painted shields, wooden plaques, and bronze and ivory implements. Inscribed dedications attest to the generosity of priestesses in making benefactions to cities and sanctuaries, to their pride in setting up images of themselves, and to their authority in upholding sanctuary law. We learn that priestesses spoke before assemblies, fixed their seals on official documents, expelled intruders from sacred shrines, led processions, and presided over sacrifice. By the Hellenistic period, some women paid significant fees to buy priesthoods, and, as those who came before them, were compensated for their service with payments of skins, hides, and meat from sacrificial victims, grain, oil, and cash. Priestesses across the Greek world were honored publicly and, like crises, with crowns, portrait statues, and reserved seating in theaters. In certain cities, priestesses enjoyed cultic and even civic eponymy, ensuring that their names would always be remembered and used to date events within a historical chronology. This evidence stands in some contrast to what has become a broadly accepted commonplace over the last 30-some years, that Athenian women held holy second-class status as silent and submissive, invisible figures, restricted to the confines of the household where they obediently tended to domestic chores and child-rearing. This view has been based largely on readings of certain well-known and privileged texts, including Xenophon, Plato, Thucydides, Isaiah, and others, and from various images of women portrayed in Greek drama. The archaeological record suggests a more complex reality than this construct allows. It encourages us to rethink the binary models of visible-invisible, public-private, male-female, that have guided us for so long. 
Josini Block has demonstrated that public space and private space are relative concepts whose meanings are determined by use and therefore by time. She tracks the mobility of Athenian women across their city and on their own schedules in which time dictates their experience of public space. I show here the route of the Panathenaic procession from the Dipolon gates through the Agora to the city Eleusinian and up to the temples of the Acropolis. Women circulated on this route not only on festival days. Indeed, daily rituals fueled the visibility of women across the Polish landscape. Requirements for the regular visitation of family tombs and cemeteries beyond the city walls and the desire for frequent worship at shrines and temples made for a reality in which scores of women traversed their towns daily. Within this landscape, visual culture supported and reflected the dynamics of myth, cult, and ritual agency. It placed images of priestesses in sanctuaries and cemeteries, in city streets and marketplaces, populating the polis with the mirrored reflections of the women who served. Even those who persist in maintaining an invisibility for Athenian women recognized that cult worship offered the single stage on which women could enjoy some measure of prominence. But this religious stage has too often been dismissed as secondary and peripheral to the political and economic nucleus of the city. Robert Parker has encouraged us to understand the embeddedness of Greek religion in all aspects of politeia and has challenged us to rethink the binary construct of sacred and secular as applied to Greek society. If things religious were not considered separate from things secular, then the positions of leadership held by priestly women were primary, not peripheral, to the centers of power and influence. Modern skepticism towards things religious and the marginalization of the importance of sacred office holding have contributed to the muting of ancient Greek women and their status within the polis. Indeed, religious office presented the one arena in which women assumed roles equal and comparable to men. Central to this phenomenon was the fact that the Greek pantheon includes both gods and goddesses, and that, with some notable exceptions, the cults of male divinities were overseen by male officials and those by, of, of female divinities by female officials. The demand for close identification between a divinity and cult attendant made for a class of female sacred servants directly comparable to that of men overseeing the cults of male divinities. Indeed, it was this demand that eventually led to a central argument over the Christian priesthood, exclusively granted to male priests in the image of a male god. As Simon Price has emphasized, the equality of men and women as priests and priestesses in ancient Greece was nothing short of remarkable. In a world in which only men could hold civic office and enjoy full political rights, it would have been simple enough for cities to organize their priesthoods on the model of magistracies. The power of gender ana analogy between sacred servant and deity was so strong that it warranted a category of female cult agents who functioned virtually as public office holders. From the 5th century BC on, we have evidence for public honors awarded to priestesses of Athena Polias at Athens. This relief, found in 1860 near the area, whoops, I think I have to go back. This relief, found in 1860 near the Erechtheion on the Acropolis, shows a helmeted Athena bending toward a woman who raises her right hand, palm open in a gesture of prayer. In the crook of the woman's left arm, the vertical shaft of a temple key, the signifier of female priesthood, can just be made out. It is possible that Athena is bending over to crown her priestess, as we see on this 4th century honorary relief now in Berlin. Here the priestess again raises her right hand heavenward in prayer and holds a clearly visible temple key in her left hand. Athena appears at right, the very image of the Athena Parthenos statue, with shield at her side and winged victory in her hand. Nike bends over to crown the priestess with public honors. Not much of this world has worked its way into the literary sources, 
But since the long-neglected visual material has its own history, its own language, motivations, and influences, we should not expect it to illustrate what is recorded in texts. Instead, it reflects aspects of priestly service not preserved elsewhere. It contributes evidence for periods and regions that do not have the benefit of a surviving textual heritage. It can sometimes even be seen to contradict the picture painted in contemporary literature, providing an important corrective to the distorting effects of the voice, intent, and context of the author, as well as the accidents of survival and the benefits of privilege that have focused our attention on only a fraction of the original corpus of texts. Fritz Graf has elucidated the ways in which ritual movement throughout the Polis landscape served to define the participants and their city. This movement could be centripetal, marching from the periphery to civic and religious center, or centrifugal, departing from the city center and advancing out towards places outside of it. Processions provided highly visible dramatic displays in which leaders and participants understood their roles. The women who led these processions marched in a spotlight that underscored their agency and highlighted their social, economic, and symbolic capital within the larger group. Here I show you the sacred way between Athens and the sanctuary of Demeter at Eleusis. In September every year, the priestess of Demeter and Kore set out from Eleusis and marched in procession some 18 miles to the center of Athens, accompanied by other priestesses and, by the second century AD, by a corps of Ephebes. She carried with her the holy things, the hiera, to signal the start of the Eleusinian mysteries. The sight of the priestess arriving at Athens with the hiera was a sensational visual event that occurred annually for nearly 1,000 years. This spectacle powerfully imprinted itself upon the collective memory of generations of Athenians. Its highly associative symbolism bound initiates and sacred officials together in an intense group experience. While priestesses are known to have held special agency in leading processions, that role is best associated with young maidens of Parthenos status, that is, just past puberty but not yet married. All across the Greek world and in Egypt, they led sacrificial processions carrying baskets in which the implements were held, knife, grains, ribbon, cakes, first fruits, and incense. For Attica alone, we know of maiden basket bearers for the Anthesteria, Apollonia, Braronia, Delia, Diogesteria, Rural Dionysia, State Dionysia, Eleusinia, the Festival of Heracles at the Mesogia, and of course at the Panathenea. Here you see a vase in Boston that shows uh, at top. Uh, a basket bearer leading a sacrificial procession complete with cows in what appears to be a public sanctuary setting. Below, we seem to have a more private family sacrifice depicted on this painted wooden plaque found at the small shrine of the Muses at Pizza near Sicyon. Personal names are inscribed above each player in the right, basket bearer, animal escort, musicians, devotees, and dedicants. Playing the role of Kanaforos was an intense social as well as religious experience for the maidens who took their place in the public spotlight for the first time. Festivals provided girls and women with important opportunities for exposure and interaction, including the chance to see and be seen by potential candidates for marriage. A position of power in the organization of festivals allowed for increased opportunities to promote family interests. Advanced family interests benefited women as well as men, and priestesses had a real stake in making the system work. The smile on this girl's face brings us some distance in approaching an archaeology of emotion that reveals a measure of the well-being experienced within, the, within female ritual agency. Participation in cult activity was a positive force in the lives of Greek women, one that brought with it a sense of community and a sense of self. This is reflected in the image shown on this vase in Newcastle, on which a young basket bearer is helped in her task by a mature woman who follows attentively behind. Though it dates so much later, we are reminded of Plutarch's comparison of a statesman's progress with the stages of female sacred service. He writes, just as at Rome, the Vestal Virgins have a definite time allotted them, first for learning, then for performing the traditional rites, and thirdly and lastly for teaching them. And as at Ephesus, they call each one of the servants of Artemis, first a novice, then a priestess, and thirdly an ex-priestess, 
So the perfect statesman engages in public affairs, first while still a learner and a neophyte, and finally as a teacher and initiator. From the 6th century BC, sculptured caryatids appear on treasuries within the sacred temenos at Delphi. Here you see the richly dressed maidens who support the lintel of the Siphnian treasury, high basket-like elements held upon their heads. Could these images in stone and reflect the appearance of the young women who circulated in ritual processions up the sacred way at Delphi, past the treasury buildings? The same can be asked of the caryatids, uh, caryatids on the south porch of the Erechtheion on the Athenian Acropolis. Atop their heads are elaborate echinus-shaped pads that cushion the weight of the lintel. Visually, they may have resonated with the appearance of actual maidens who served as canaphorae and circulated within the sacred space. Libation bowls held low at their sides and dressed in their festival finery, they may have served as mirrors and marble for the maidens processing before them. Set high above ground level, the Erechthean caryatids would have looked down on the processions that passed before them. During festivals when the Zoanon statue of Athena and other sacred relics may have been carried high in processional displays, the caryatids would have been seen to view the spectacle at eye level, becoming one with it. Architectural sculpture may thus inform us of ritual movement within the sacred space and enable us up to a point to envision the living sanctuary. Here it might be helpful to have a quick look sideways at some of the images of temple processions from South India, and I show you the live temple procession at Chitrai and a 19th century painting of a temple pro uh, procession um, from Tanjore. In fact, if we have a quick look at the Hall of a Thousand Pillars at Madurai, um, we can see that uh, the procession would go down the hall and these life-size uh, statues coming off from the pilasters would be at eye level with the statues carried before them and in fact have an opportunity to interact somewhat with them as does the statue of the Nayak rulers and their wives as they bow as they pass. In a sense, I think that the caryatids of the Erechtheion may have functioned in such a way. For, for Greek cult, we, we, we see sites empty of the ritual and, uh, and, the, and the people that would have inhabited during um, great festivals, and we are at somewhat of a loss to understand these statues when they're devoid of the living context of the Greek rite. At the sanctuary of Demeter at Eleusis, great images of maidens carrying baskets on their head, the kistai that held the mystical contents uh, for the ritual, served to support and adorn the roof of the lesser propylaea during Roman times. Facing toward the sanctuary, the kistophori would appear to march through the gateway itself and toward the sacred precinct, as did so many women throughout centuries of worship. Across the Aegean, the venerable archaic shrines of Asia Minor give further evidence for the living sanctuary and the circulation of female agents within it. Let us go to Ephesus, Miletus, and down the sacred way to the great sanctuary of Apollo at Didyma. Processions of maidens made their way each year, marching along the sacred route from the Delphinian at Miletus to Didyma's temple of Apollo. The huge, and here you see the sacred way, and the route that the maidens would have taken, along with others. The huge column shafts of uh, the pronos of the Temple of Apollo were decorated with sculptured drums, showing nearly life-size images of maidens in high relief. They circled the drums at the ground level and may well have mirrored ring dances, so central to Greek female ritual, possibly performed within the broad open space between the temple and its altar. As opportunities for visibility and display, circle dances and sanctuary settings again afforded maidens of marriageable age a chance to be seen by the entire community. The fragments of these sculptured column drums, now in Berlin, show maidens dressed in festival finery, smiling demurely beneath their veiled headdresses, crowned with wreaths and ribbons. So too, at the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, ornately carved female figures encircle the lowest of the column drums on the east facade, 
They show young women draped in rich layers of fabric and adorned with crowns and earrings. Set at ground level, they could well reflect the ritual movement of cult agents within this sacred space. Many years later, dating to the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC and back across the Aegean in the southern Peloponnese, the little sanctuary of Artemis Orthia in the great city of Messini preserves a rare glimpse of how an active shrine functioned. Eleven stone bases, five of which are inscribed, have been found in situ within the cella, deliberately placed in a circle spreading out from the base of Damathon's cult statue of Artemis uh, Phosphorus, which sits just here, and here are the statue bases. Five life-size statues of girls can be matched to these bases, as can three under-life-size statues of mature priestesses that date somewhat later into the Roman period. Just beyond the cella, to the east, in the open square surrounding the Esclepion, just here, an altar, and you see it here, an altar and high stone pilaster sit on a direct axis with Artemis's shrine. This was the setting for its sacrificial activity and is the likely destination for the ritual ambulation of a small cult image carried in nocturnal processions. Petrus Themilis has associated the statues of the girls with the inscribed bases that tell us who they are. Timoretta at left and Theophania at right wear high-belted dresses, peploi, that communicate their youthful age band, not quite yet of Parthenos status. Theophania's dress has been carved with great care and shows press folds and lined impressions. You see them here. Uh, lined impressions from the fabric that lies beneath. She adorns her fancy costume with a circular pendant worn between the breasts, probably once gilded to represent a special item of jewelry, perhaps associated with the vestments of local cult initiation. Just beside Artemis's statue, a base uh, sat a base that once held the image of the girl you see here at left, Mego. The base is inscribed in iambic verse that tells us what took place. To you, the maid, Mistress Orthia, Demonikos and his wife Timarchis, who served as priests and are of noble parentage, dedicated me their child, Mego, who have carried your image, O Artemis, in my hand, and they dedicated the torch which I have held up before your altar. Themilis has been able to associate the fragmentary arm at center with the image of Mego. It is circled with fancy snake bracelets and holds a small herm-shaped statue covered by a cloth and decorated with a shield-shaped boss. The statue at right shows a girl of, uh, is a statue of slightly later date, which may also have carried an image of the divinity, as suggested by the marble strut that supports extra weight once held in her right hand. We know that Mago also carried a torch, which suggests that the rites took place at night. Nocturnal torch carrying or even torch racing would render the girl initiates true phosphoroi, bearers of light, like Artemis Phosphorus, in whose shrine they served. Petrus Themilis has articulated a powerful analogy between these statues and the girls' choruses at Sparta, as described in the poet Alcman's First Parthenian. Though the poem dates many centuries before the statues, there is real resonance in the imagery. The girls of the Parthenian comprise a self-conscious group differentiated from a class of older women who served as their instructors. And at Messini, statues of mature priestesses were found together with their cylindrical inscribed bases. These suggest a similar pattern of older women um, working with girls here at Mycenae, and I show you the priestess Arana at left and Claudia Ceteris at right. In Alcman's poem, special mention is made of the girls' fancy dresses and golden snake bracelets. We learn that they carried the cloak, or pharos, to Orthria through the ambrosial night. 
The statues, in turn, show girls dressed in ornately wrought costumes, made of fancy fabrics, wearing finger rings, and on their arms, bracelets shaped like serpents. Oops, sorry. The statues were deliberately set up as a self-contained group, forming a circle. Could this arrangement again reflect the ring dances that girls with hands joined may have performed for the goddess? Such dances would have been accompanied by song, perhaps even by singing competitions, as those for Artemis Orthria in Alcman's Parthenion. There is one more parallel between Alcman's imagery and that of the Messenian sculptures. Oops, sorry the wrong button. Um, the Herm statue of Orthria, hidden beneath the cloth um, that Themelis has associated with the pharos, the cloak that the Spartan maidens carried in their nocturnal rites. Themelis has made a very convincing case that a small wooden bretos or statue was kept here in the shrine, and he even has um, an, a cutting for it in one of the stone blocks near the statue base of the uh, cult statue of Artemis. He believes that this bretos, or image, was kept in the shrine and moved in nighttime rituals to the altar in the open square. Feminine sacred service was deeply intertwined with the morphology of female lyric choruses, which from the 7th century BC were central to the education and socialization of women from childhood to maturity. Plato himself maintained that choral dancing constituted the entirety of education. An image evocative of female choral and ritual groupings is shown in this libation bowl in Boston. Here we see women joining hands in a circle dance set to the music of a female flute player. Altar and ribbons communicate a sacred context while the wool basket alludes to female virtue in domesticity. Seven women dance with arms grasped at the wrist to form a chain. The first women look forward. The second pair look at one another as they move in unison. At the end of the line, two younger maidens with long flowing tresses look in the same direction toward a woman who brings up the end of the line. They seem to be novices in the choral dance, looking to the older woman for direction. The shape of the vase itself is one with ritual function. It is a fiale from which a liquid offering would be poured, perhaps onto a flaming altar, such as the one shown on it. Here, form, function, and decoration come together effectively to embody female ritual agency. A sixth-century black-figured cut from Cameros on Rhodes shows a line of five dancing women and one man at the back moving from the enthroned goddess, Demeter at left, towards her priestess, shown behind a flaming altar at right. The priestess holds a winnowing basket, an instrument of the harvest, while the ritual dancers celebrate what appears to be a harvest festival. Much work remains to be done in the forging of an archaeology of cult, yet topography, architecture, word, and image can come together to give insight into the life of ancient sanctuaries. Generations of young women danced around the Kalikoron well at the sanctuary of Demeter at Eleusis, shown here. Named for the beautiful dance Kalikoron, this architectural feature was so central to local ritual that it was respected over centuries of building, even when ground level was raised high by overlying Roman construction phases. These days, I am taking a hard look at the ritually charged northern cliffs of the Athenian Acropolis, just beneath the Erechtheion, the setting for so many tales from local myth. It is here, on the northern ramparts of the Acropolis, that the salvaged column drums and metopes from the archaic temples burned by the Persians in 480 BC um, were set up in a commemorative display visible to this day, both on the outside of the walls and on the inside. Just behind them, there is a rectangular space formed by the north porch of the Erechtheion at the west, a broad staircase at the east, you see it here, and by three long steps flanking the main cella of the Erechtheion at the south. I wonder if this configuration of steps 
did not define a small theatrical space, flanked on three sides, as it were, by bleachers for viewers. This ritually charged square would have been an ideal location for choral dancing in a space associated with old Athenian foundation myths. One could only imagine maidens participating in the night vigil of the Panathenea, the Panikis, joining hands here in a circle dance. The beautiful choral ode of Euripides' Heraclidae may provide an actual hymn from the vigil, commemorating the youths and maidens singing and dancing the whole night through. At the opposite side of the Acropolis, just along the south wall and to the west of the Parthenon, was found this inscribed circular base, fitted for a bronze statue of Lysimache, who served as priestess of Athena Polias for some 64 years, spanning the 5th and 4th centuries BC. It bears witness to a long and pervasive tradition in which the communality of priestess and divinity, of priestess and sacred space, were immortalized in lasting portrait images. Here we see Nick Hesso, priestess of Demeter at Priene in the third century, flanking the entrance of the sanctuary, together with bases for statues of other priestesses who served. From Ramnus to Messini, from Samos to Priene, from Thassos to Cyprus, statues of priestesses transformed the sacred landscape and became one with it. They may well have become part of a ritual of visitation itself, whereby children, initiates, and other newcomers were educated in shared local history, family traditions, and cult practice. Shown with their sacred implements, jugs, bowls, and temple keys, or with their hands raised heavenward in supplication, these portrait statues kept the prayer of the priestess alive in perpetuity before the divinity. As Louise Bury and Pauline Schmidt have observed, it is impossible to study a statue in isolation from the ritual use to which it was put. Within visual culture, there is one preeminent signifier that confirms female priesthood, and that is the temple key. Funny that it becomes expropriated by St. Peter and the Vatican um, into the basic logo years later. From the archaic period onward, women are shown holding large rod-like keys to communicate their status as klaidukoi, those entrusted with locking and unlocking the temple doors. Temples functioned as virtual treasuries, filled as they were with precious metal offerings and dedications in other luxury materials. Responsibility for keeping the temple key was no small matter and represents considerable responsibility within the sanctuary hierarchy. So powerful was this attribute that on its own, it could confirm sacral status for women who appear otherwise unremarkable. The placing of a key in the hand of the young woman at upper left endows the generic figure with priestly status. It is owing to the image of a young man on the reverse side that the girl has been identified as Iphigenia, shown in tandem with her brother Orestes and in her role as priestess of Athena at Tauris. Still, a full repertory of ritual paraphernalia can also be manipulated in vase painting to communicate cult agency, libation bowls, wine jugs, baskets, offering trays, lustral branches, and ribbons. Each of these figural elements, what Claude Berard has called minimal syntagmata and Gloria Ferrari has termed sign components, can be combined to yield complex configurations through which signification takes place. The ways in which these signs are juxtaposed, combined, and even omitted, can be read like a language that communicates the essential acts of procession, libation, sacrifice, and feasting. A woman depicted on the cup in Toledo, Ohio, stands before an altar, manipulating a number of implements, including her sacrificial basket, a large jug, uh, from which she pours a libation onto a flaming altar. Behind her, an incense burner further communicates uh, ritual action within the sanctuary space. Now, the flaming altar is a most powerful motif. The juxtaposition of a female figure beside a flaming altar confirms her ritual presidency within the sacred space. Here, on a vase by the effector, the priestess raises her hands in prayer on the far side of the altar, 
receiving a procession complete with animal escort, men carrying lustral branches, wreaths, jugs, and a basket. A priestess similarly is shown receiving a sacrificial procession on this black-figured cup in a private collection, um, where she is shown here at the far left. She is positioned, and let's cut off a bit, but just in front of an image of Athena and just behind a flaming altar. She receives a procession led by a man, a maiden coniforos, um, animal escort, and we go on to see um, uh, foot soldiers uh, beyond. The manipulation of these signs and symbols and the creation of meaning can be seen throughout the visual language to communicate female cult agency. And here you see a variety of images that you have um, seen across the course of this lecture. Priestess, flaming altar, and goddess here. That We have Demeter on the far side here. Um, this is uh, how the signs and symbols, these basic sign components, are used to communicate the identity of cult agents. The final chapter in the mobility of the priestess across the Polish landscape was the funeral procession that carried her body beyond the city walls to the cemetery. Here we are at the final destination in the Karamaikos Cemetery outside the city gates of Athens. From the fifth century BC onwards, grave markers identify priestesses by name and cult. They come in all shapes and sizes, sculptured stele, marble lekithoi, and inscribed epitaphs. Here you see the stele of Merini, priestess of Athena Nike on the Acropolis at the end of the fifth and early fourth centuries. Here a marble lekithos, priestess with key. Chiristra tape in the Piraeus, priestess of um, Sibylle. She has a temple key here, and she's approached by a girl with a large kettle drum. Again, another priestess of the Great Mother with kettle drum um, here, Nicomache. Here we see Koirine and Polixena and a priestess of unknown name from Ramnus, all distinguished again by the temple key to establish their sacred identity in final memorials that give lasting presence to the sacred roles that engaged them in life. Even when Demetrius of Phaleron put an end to ostentatious grave markers in the last quarter of the fourth century BC, the simple funeral columns and marble tables that persist, uh, that replaced lavish grave markers, persisted in showing the image of the temple key together with the name of the deceased in a simple shorthand. From Taurus in southern Italy, we get a rare reminder of the lavishness of priestly burials. This group of scepter, finger ring, and necklace may well have adorned a priestess of Hera as signaled by the horned heads of Eo. You see the little horns coming off of the heads on the pendants dangling here. Eo was, of course, Hera's hapless priestess who was transformed into a cow. By late Hellenistic and Roman times, we hear of lavish public funerals for Greek priestesses, particularly in Asia Minor. We hear that their corpses were carried through the streets on biers, dressed in purple and gold, accompanied by processions of city magistrates, priests and priestesses, boys, youths, and male citizens, maidens, female citizens, and other free women. Public mourning was announced, temples and shops were closed, and priestesses even took their resting places within city walls. One cannot underestimate the visual impact of the preparation and movement of the adorned corpses of priestesses in funeral processions across cities and out to cemeteries. The lasting memorials for priestesses were not just the grave monuments that marked their tombs, but also the collective memory of the communities that buried them through the highly visible process of ritual. 
Why is it so important that we adjust our view of the realities of women in Greek antiquity? For one thing, it has a profound effect on the ways in which we understand what followed. In view of the evidence gathered here, it is surprising that a popular view persists in seeing Christianity as an opportunity through which women escaped their lowly status within the pagan system. We might see the situation the other way around. Indeed, the example of the Greek priestess may have given women of the early church the presumption that they too would hold sacred office. They certainly functioned as presbyters, deacons, prophets, leaders of house churches, and teachers in certain places during the early centuries of Christianity. Some measure of the church's motivation in denying the possibility of women priests, ever increasing from the 4th century on, may have been a desire to distance itself from the traditional Greco-Roman cult practice in which priestesses played such a central role. For Christianity to truly separate itself from the pagan cult worship, it had to abolish one of the most visible and characteristic pillars of Greek religion, the sacred service of women, maidens, and girls. There may be no finer tribute to the potency of the Greek priestess than the discomfort that her position caused the Church Fathers. Christian monotheism, with its singular vision of an apparently male-gendered God, marginalized the female divine presence and thus the female cult agents who served it. Thank you very much. I had a two-part question. One of them was um, about regional variation in the picture you, you, you painted about the participation of women priestesses in ritual spaces. And I'm, you, you used very broad strokes. And I wondered if there was any more nuance to time and geography where you thought these trends might be, these examples were more intense than in other locations, or whether you thought it was truly a equally distributed, equally strong um, phenomenon throughout the Greco-Roman basin. And then I had a second question related to your final concluding remarks about um, the relationship between early Christian women and um, polytheistic cult. And I wondered if you, would, um, if you would be able at all to speak to the place of Judaism negotiating that and the important collection of epigraphic evidence about um, women leaders, including priestesses in, in Judaism as well, and whether you see the Greco-Roman polytheistic evidence overwhelming the Jewish evidence in sort of the evolution of Christian trends. Thank you. Great. Yes. Um, I do take a broad look, um, partly because I am trying to avoid, uh, avoid uh, an ethnocentric um, view, and most of what we do know has, uh, of the visual material has come from Athens, which uh, gives us such an abundance of material. So, I, no, it was not, I'm not arguing for continuity across the Mediterranean basin and throughout all periods. And um, this is, uh, I'm trying to give you an overview here. Um, it was, Greek religion is highly localized. Where things happen has everything to do with how things happened. So, geography, time, space, I really, uh, we have to go to a complexity theory model if we really want to understand how Greek cult functions. So it's different everywhere, but there has been a certain tendency to privilege the sources from Athens, which give us one particular view from a relatively short period of time. And so I like looking at what's happening everywhere. I, I don't, I, I'm trying not to privilege Athens in the fifth century over uh, the great spread of, of a thousand years in which uh, we have evidence for, for cult. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, again, 
The evidence is just so sporadic. I mean, it's very hard to draw general conclusions from any of the evidence. My evidence for priestess uh, speaking before the assembly may come from Amargos, and this may come from here. These are one-offs um, epigraphical uh, uh, evidence that, that we are lucky to have survived. So I don't know. I think what my view does show me is that, um, that you know, the classical, the 5th century Athens is, may not be the golden age of Greek religion. The robustness of what's happening in the Hellenistic period is so thrilling um, uh, that, you know, we don't have a continuity of practice, but we have differences everywhere, not just Athens and outside of Athens. So um, it's very hard to generalize, however. For example, we have um, certain cases of women buying priesthoods used as an example of women acting in their own rights. And if you get really close into the inscriptions, it shows, in fact, these women have men acting as their guardians and agents buying, and the women sometimes are serving as a funnel to pass a priesthood from a deceased uncle to their son. And so, no, they're, I'm not pushing it. I'm not saying that they had legal, uh, any, any uh, broad stroke in the legal arena. No, we, ha we do happen to have lots of wonderful stories about priestesses and courtroom dramas. Um, but again, uh, these largely come from literary texts and they may be apocryphal as opposed to actual hard evidence. So I tend to, um, you know, I tend to look at the material culture that is the epigraphic and archaeological material and, and my contribution is not to be um, in, in the literary field um, in particular. Your second question, um, yes, what is very exciting about the um, epigraphic material for um, Jewish holy women um, is that how similar the, the two categories in which we have uh, inscriptions are grave markers and benefactions. And the language used in these are quite similar for early Christian holy women, Jewish holy women, and um, Greek priestesses and Greco-Roman priestesses, shall we say. Um, and that I think that this is coming out of the, the um, social system of the Greek city and the presumption that women with resources will participate in ergotism. Um, no matter, no matter what their faith, and that in these early years of the of uh, first three, four centuries A.D., five centuries, there's a lot of fluidity. People converting um, to Christianity, transferring back again. There, there's a mobility there, but there is a sense. And you're right. There, the language of of mothers of the synagogue, priests, priestesses, ieresa. Um, the language is very, very similar. And what it what it shows us, I think, is less to do about the divisions of religion and more to do about the social context um, uh, of women in their local town situation. They want to contribute. They want to give benefactions, and, they, and the society wishes to remember them as a holy woman. It doesn't really much matter which faith they're um, moving towards. Is this on? Oh. The Oracle at Delphi, can you tell us a little bit about her uh, superstardom? Yes, I mean, it is true, superstardom, and I have to say, she is the aberration. She does not behave like the normal Greek priestess, so everyone always um, thinks first of the Oracle, and she is uh, highly unusual, her entire profile. Um, you know, from the, the classical period onwards, the paths to priesthood um, were largely open to people from good families or with a lot of cash. And uh, one or the other, but uh, you had to have one or the other, both is best. What is odd about the um, Oracle of Delphi is that she is said to have come from a, the local peasantry. So she does not fit the profile of being from a good old family or um, being a woman of wealth. So that's odd. The other thing that is odd is, oh, much is made over the fact that it's a celibate priesthood. But of course, it is for, um, women over 50. Um, many of them are grandmothers. Uh, we have inscriptions where a Delphic uh, oracle is uh, setting up a statue of her granddaughter. And I mean, it, it, is, it is much less mysterious on the ground than what we, we, we are very much seduced by the writings of, uh, well, Diodorus Siculus, a few sources that are, 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 are loom large in our view, and these sources tend to be those that tell the extraordinary cases of the Delvic Oracle who was forced to give 
uh, pronouncement on a day when it was unauspicious or she wasn't meant to, and she, uh, the god took over, and she raged through the temple, and she tore her hair and her dress, and she fell down dead. So the, we, we, we hear about these great stories, and the ancient authors tend to tell about the extraordinary circumstances. Inscriptions, and there are very few, I mean, well, there's only one, uh, actually, um, that tells the, this grandmother setting up a statue for her daughter. But the, sometimes the material culture on the ground presents a much more ordinary um, picture than the extraordinary news that we get. The third thing that makes her very unusual is that um, most oracular cults um, were based on uh, some kind of devices or symbols, uh, lottery, sortition, dice, beans out of pots. And Delphi is unusual because it's direct inspiration from the god. The god speaks uh, through the voice box. So that's odd. There's a lot that's odd about Delphi. But, of course, it was the Delphic Oracle was open for, you know, practicing for nearly a 1,000 years. It loomed very, very large. So that's its place. But she is unusual in every point, not typical. Ingrid. Oh, oh there's someone mm. with the mic. Yeah. Yes? Me, my mom and I would like to know... Uh, in some of the vase pictures, women are white while men are kind of darker. Do you know why this is? The, the convention of showing women with white skin and men with dark skin, I mean, this is across many cultures, including most, um, you know, noticeably Egyptian art. You can go back much, much earlier. Um, and this is um, generally understood to be a, a convention that... Um, well, yes, that would show the woman stays in home, at home, and that she is not out in the sun working. She is a woman um, of leisure and of high status, and her skin is pale and white, um, whereas men go out and circulate in the agora and get dark. That is one, uh, that's the standard um, answer. And I guess until fairly recently in the march for hist of history, um, you know, women are now, women did keep their skin pale and did stay inside, and um, that is probably what, what, what we're seeing. We, we have seen the, the maidens who were being trained, then the women who were uh, priestesses, and, and you alluded to the role of teachers that they would eventually get. Did they retire after a while? I mean, what happened to them afterwards? I mean, uh, Well, this is Plutarch I was quoting, which is a little bit late for did they retire. Well... I think it was teaching. We have inscriptions that talk about women as being um, uh, prostasis or a patron or uh, women uh, looking after younger women, uh, particularly in, in situations of child-rearing and um, marriage and things like that, patrons. Um, I can't think of any hard evidence on retirement. Maybe they died earlier. I think that this is a modern phenomenon. I have a question that's um, in a very different direction. Uh, as a laboratory scientist, I have my own experience about what it means to discover something. And I'm curious about when you, when you show these things that you've gone to length to find, how suddenly do you discover something? And can you describe a time when you were surprised when you found out one of these things about the oracle or about one of these other entities from the past? The surprise doesn't come... Well, the, the great fun um, and challenge of working with texts and images, literary texts, epigraphical texts and images, is watching how they can shed light on one another, how they exist independently, 
and how they shed light on one another. And I guess it's when you get that sort of electric crossover and things kind of come together in an um, exciting way. I, I have to say that the process of discovery, I, as a field archaeologist, I'm discovering all the time, and that's a different kind of discovery. That's discovering things, and then there's the process of discovery, which is in the interpretative discovery that's made the armchair archaeologist kind of mode, right? And so they're two totally different, but one does inform the other. I think that the field discovery makes one cautious. It makes me more cautious. I think of, you know, I have many ideas that don't, that don't fly. They get tested. I mean, I... You know, you don't say it's wrong. You say that's not working. It, I, it's not strong enough. I can't build a strong enough case to make that. Oh, I do that all the time. I mean, not all. I mean, I've had some great things that I was just on the brink of something wonderful. I had something very important to say about Lysimache. Lysimache, uh is the daughter of Dracontis. Dra Lysimache Dracontidu. I got very excited because there's a vase in Ruvo in Italy that was published um, in the 19th century and then again by John Beasley, but just in a little lying drawing. And this vase, it's a Lacanes, do you know it? And it has Lysistrata Mirinae. These are the two women of Aristophanes Lysistrata. And the next word over was Dracontis. And I was like, oh my God. The mightiest painter knows that it's the patronymic of the real live Lysimache, who is called Lysistrata, but you juxtaposed was Lysistrata Dracontis. Now, this was great, because David Lewis long ago had said, Lysistrata is based on the life of the real life priestess Lysimache, but there's a name change. But if I had a vase that had the patronymic of Lysimache, this was it. So, very exciting. This was supposed to be part of this book. And I went to Ruvo. It's a long drive to Ruvo. <laughs> and I went to the Museo Yata, and I found Ms. Signora Yata, and we got the vase out of the... And, and David Lewis and Beasley had discussed it and published it together. And I get it out, and I look, and it doesn't say Dracontis. It says Arche Roa. Oh, this was terrible. I mean, completely misread. They never went there. Somebody had must have written it down on a slip of paper wrong. And the, and the alpha of Arcaroa looked like a D, a, you know, delta. And, well, my heart, it was terrible. It was terrible. I mean, I literally had gone, I had 10 cameras. I had, you know, I was, I was going to document this thing. I, I, I took a lot of pictures, and I came home very disappointed. There was my punchline. Wouldn't that have been a great thing to find? No? So, yeah, didn't work out. Nothing to do but drop it. I did put in a footnote. I said, you know, first-hand investigation of the object shows doesn't say what it's been published as for 22 centuries, whatever. Anyway, there we are. So that was a disappointment, but not a life wrecker, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know. mentioned a procession freeze in Boston, and the priestess is holding up something with, and it looks like an archway on top. That's the basket. The basket, yes. And those arches are handles, and they go three handles really high. Because it looked like horns on the side, as, if, as in, uh, you know, a, a, a Roman um, sarcophagus on the ends, because they were definitely curving out to the right, and then in the center was a what looked like an archway or a... Well, we do get this configuration. I think they're trying to show in, a, in, a per, in perspective two side handles and the one handle is straight on, the other two are seen obliquely. Right. It's just that later the, the, what the centerpiece was cross-hatched and it looked like a basket. But... but There are many different configurations of these kanat. Mm. They, they look many different ways, depending on the vase painter, uh, but I don't think that they're horns. Thank you.
Okay, thank you very much.